I had my conversation with Philostrato, said Frost in his low, clear voice. I used expressions, which must have made my meaning clear, if he had any notion of the truth. His senior assistant, Wilkins, was present too. The fact is that neither is really interested. What interests them is the fact that they have succeeded, as they think, in keeping the head alive and getting it to talk. What it says does not really interest them. As to any question about what is really speaking, they have no curiosity. I went very far. I raised questions about its mode of consciousness, its sources of information. There was no response. This is Men with Chest, the podcast that pursues objective truth, goodness, and beauty, where we go back to the great books that made the West and give warning to the fate that awaits mankind should we not cultivate virtue. Welcome to chapter 11. This chapter is called Battle Begun, and we'll begin with a summary. Jane and the crew head out to find Merlin, but the rain makes it nearly impossible to see anything. Jane thinks they should get out and walk, which would be easier. She then sees a fire and remembers a part of her dream that she forgot to tell the others. In the dream, she found Merlin by a fire in the woods. He'd already left from under Bragdon Wood. The group heads toward the fire on foot. While moving through the dark and mud, Jane ruminates on death. She never thought much about religion or the thought of death. Now, however, she knows she cannot avoid death and how close it might be. The group ends up detouring around due to the woods and trees and has a hard time getting closer to the fire. They finally get close enough and Jane thinks she sees someone. When they approach, they see a tent and a beggar's items, including a donkey, but no one is around. The fairy... Wither and Professor Frost converse in Wither's office. Miss Hardcastle is trying to get Wither to let her interrogate Mark, whom they have picked up under the guise that he's been apprehended by the normal police. Miss Hardcastle wants to rough him up a bit to find out where Jane is. Wither simply stares at Frost's forehead the entire time, and he says that they cannot allow her to torture Mark. If Mark is tortured and Jane sees him in that state, she might lose her ability as a seer, and be of no use to them. She has to come to them freely, and Mark must not be tortured. Miss Hardcastle is eventually dismissed, and Wither and Frost talk about their options with Mark. Wither wonders if Jane is really necessary, while Frost reminds him that they have been ordered to obtain Jane. Frost then wonders if they can make Mark have a genuine change of heart. If so, he might bring Jane to them without having to torture him, or risk upsetting Jane and losing her gift. Frost suggests truly letting Mark into their inner circle, suggesting some type of experiment with him where he will see what they are truly about. The entire time the two speak, they get closer to one another, at last almost touching. Their faces, in fact, are nearly kissing as if lovers. Frost reminds Wither that Mark is valuable even without Jane's clairvoyance. He's an ideal candidate, as he wouldn't resist and would allow himself to be unified Wither laughs, Frost touches his shoulder, and then a crash is heard in the room. They are thrown together in an embrace and cannot get apart. A shrill, loud, animal laugh is heard. Mark ruminates on death in his cell. He thinks the place is familiar, but doesn't know where he is. He isn't thinking about immortality, as it doesn't concern him. He's thinking about the physical act of dying, and this physicality of death tears at him. He looks back at his life and thinks it has all been dreary. 
He sees that he has been a pawn, and that the nice has played on his desire to be wanted and admired. He wonders when it started, and realizes that, though he thought it began with Feverstone and getting the fellowship and being a part of the progressive element, it actually began when he was a child. He left friends behind to be a part of the in-crowd. His one consolation is that Jane will be rid of him now. He won't drag her down or use her as a stepping stone in his desire to be wanted by others. When the door opens, Mark recognizes Professor Frost and knows instantly that he is at Belberry. Mark wonders how he could ever have trusted a man like Frost. All right, so to begin with the stuff I wanted to talk about with this chapter, in that first scene of Jane and the other guys out looking for Merlin, uh, that situation causes Jane to think about Maleldil. And the narrator, Lewis, says that she hasn't thought about Maleldil up to that point. And then he says, She did not doubt that the Eldils existed, nor did she doubt the existence of this stronger and more obscure being whom they obeyed. That's Maleldil. Whom the director obeyed. And through him, the whole household, even McPhee. All right, so this is a good point to talk about what these Eldils are in the story and what Maleldil is, and then a couple things related to that. So Eldils is a pretty broad category in the Ransom trilogy. You have Maleldil, capital M, and that is essentially God. He's the head Eldil, you could say. Then you have the Oyarsa, which are the seven Eldils that are in charge of the particular planetary spheres in the medieval cosmos. So you have a, a Eldil in charge of Thulchandra, which is Earth, one in charge of Luna, the moon, you know, so on and so forth for all the different seven planetary spheres. And then you also have just Eldils that are not Maleldil, obviously, because there's only one. Uh, there's only one Maleldil. And then not the Oyarsa, because there's seven of those, but just Eldils, including what are called macrobes in this story, which are essentially the dark or bent Eldils. So a useful way to understand what this terminology is talking about would be to relate it to Hebrew and Greek words from the biblical text, because that's kind of where Lewis is drawing this whole idea anyways. I mean, it is where this idea is coming from anyways. And so in Hebrew, you have Elohim, which is just gods. And then you have the head of the Elohim, which is Yahweh. And he's the head honcho. He'd be like Maleldil in Lewis's um, verbiage of these same kind of beings. Then you have other beings that are also considered Elohim, uh, but are not obviously Yahweh. And so a couple important names of those other beings, and I'm sure I'm not getting the Hebrew pronunciation correct here, but I'll go for it anyways. One is Malak, which is uh, angel when you go to the, the Greek. So if you look at, say, the Septuagint for the Old Testament, then the Malak would become Angelos in the Greek, so then angel. Uh, so that's that's one. Another one would be Shadim, which then if you look at the, the Greek would be Diamon, which is then transliterated into English as demon. Now, an important thing to note here with, with that word uh, Diamon is that when it's transliterated into English, it's not so it's not a translation, it's a transliteration into English then as demon. We often think that demon uh, carries with it an explicitly negative or evil uh, connotation. And it's easy to understand why that would be, because the word daimon or daimonion, just an extra I-O-N at the end, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right again, but those two words refer to the, the same thing. And 
Those are the two Greek words that are used frequently in the New Testament, and they're almost always talking about uh, negative things, uh, you know, attached to spiritual beings that are evil. Uh, the one exception, I believe, is Acts 17, where there it's more of a general uh, term for just anything included within the spiritual realm, just like Eldil. So anyways, it's easy to see why daimon gets that negative connotation. However, the Greek word daimon is used to refer to neutral beings as well, not just those that are evil. And this is something that Lewis knew about. He uh, has a section on it in the discarded image where the beings there using the Latin word are longevity instead of daimon. But he, he also uses daimon in that book itself, too. And then in that his strength, you see him use the word daimon or demon uh, twice. And it's both in reference to a being that is neutral or even perhaps good. And you see uh, actually a variation in the spelling, too, depending on what uh, book you're looking at. So the Scribner copy, the 2003 uh, one with the picture of the moon and the two guys standing on it, the most common one that people probably have if they're reading that hideous strength, you see on page 377 the word daimon, D-A-E-M-O-N, and it could also be spelled D-A-I-M-O-N. But regardless of that, that's the, the diamond spelling. And you see that used there, but then if you look at the public domain copy of That Hideous Strength, you can see the PDF online by Samizdat, and that you see in that same uh, place, you see D-E-M-O-N, demon. And it's talking about ex explicitly there, uh, the sentence says, they are a sort of good daimon or demon. So there you can see good explicitly attached with the word daimon or demon. All right, then another case where you see it used comes in chapter 14 after Jane has had this experience of meeting uh, Paralandra's wraith is essentially what it is. And without talking any more about that, we'll get to that when we get to chapter 14. But the sentence where you see it used comes from Ransom talking to Jane about what she saw. And he says, so you get her raw, meaning the uh, wraith of Paralander, which is Venus. So th this would be one of the Oyarsa. This would be Venus's Oyarsa and uh, Paralander is the other name for Venus. Anyways, that wraith that she sees um, is, is what we're talking about here. So you get her raw, not stronger than Mother Dimble would find her, but untransformed demoniac. So there you see the word demon once again. And this is talking about the Wraith of Paralander, which is not a bad figure. It's actually a, uh, a good ruler. It's one of the good Oyarsa. The bad Yorarsa is the guy who's in charge of Earth, Thalakandra, and he is described as being the bent one. Okay, so this is just another example that daimon or demon, the transliterated use of daimon is not explicitly tied to evil. All right. So Eldil, I think is meant to include all the beings within the spiritual realm, just like Elohim includes all the beings within the spiritual realm in Hebrew. And you don't have to take my word for it. Um, Lou Marcos, he recommends unseen realm by Michael Heiser, which is a great uh, source to look at this stuff. I think a common mistake with the ransom trilogy is to equate Eldil probably with Angel, and that's just uh, common. It's easy to do. But the key thing to understand here is that Angel, or Angelosin, the Greek, 
that's more of a function than a actual ontological entity. So it's not saying that that is a particular being. It's saying that is the function of that being. So a angelos, an angel, is a messenger. It's somebody who has some sort of uh, you know function to perform, and that function is to be a messenger. So we could say that within the classification of Eldils, there are angels, but there are also those beings that are not messengers. They are also Eldils, but that's not their function. They are pursuing their own ends, is how it's put by uh, Dr. Dimble at some point in the book. They are neutrals, capital N, neutrals. That's another way it's phrased in that hedia strength. Another way of saying it is to say they are the daimons, transliterated as demon. And of course, this is really hard for us to grasp because we immediately associate demon with evil, like I explained. But we can really clear that up by just using the word devil in place of every time we would want to use demon. So instead of saying demons, you would just say devils. And then you can uh, retain that neutral um, definition as it is in the Greek of daimon, which then in English is demon. Okay, so to make my case that I think by using Eldil, Lewis means to include all the spiritual beings, all the beings within the spiritual realm, I'm going to go to a little passage from chapter 13. And this is one that I talked to uh, Jason Baxter about as well. So you probably recognize it from that if you listen to that episode. So this is Dimble, Dr. Dimble talking to his wife. And he mentions something called neutrals. And then his wife says neutrals. And then he replies, he says, I don't mean, of course, that anything can be a real neutral. A conscious being is either obeying God or disobeying him. But there might be things neutral in relation to us. You mean Eldils, angels? Well, the word angel rather begs the question. Even the Oyersu aren't exactly angels in the same sense as our guardian angels are. Technically, they are intelligences. All right, so here we get uh, right to the heart of the matter. Angels are not exactly the same as Oyarsu, because as we talked about, uh, the Oyarsu, those are the seven uh, beings that are in charge of the different planetary spheres. So you can't just equate them, right, to the Oyarsu and the angels don't have the exact same functions. You know, the angels are, uh, as we'll see it later put by Dimble here, ministering spirits, whereas the Oyarsu are the rulers of those different planetary spheres. So different functions, although they're both Eldils. Okay, and then that line, technically they are intelligences. Intelligences is capitalized. And the thing he's talking about there are Eldils. So technically Eldils are intelligences. Now relate this to the little... A quote that I use from Abolition of Man to close each episode. The end of that quote, he says, by our intellect, we are mere spirit, right? So intellect is mere spirit. And Eldils are intelligences. They are intellect. They are mere spirit. All right. And then Dimble goes on. He says, the point is that while it may be true at the end of the world to describe every Eldil either as an angel or a devil, and by that he means as a being that's either obeying God, an angel, or disobeying God, a devil. He's using those terms to refer to obedience or disobedience there. Uh, and then he says, and may even be true now. So it may even be true now to, to classify them all um, as either angel or devil. He says, it was much less true in Merlin's time, going back to 5th century. There used to be things on this earth pursuing their own business, so to speak. 
They weren't ministering spirits, which would be angels, sent to help fallen humanity, but neither were they enemies preying upon us, which would be the devils. And this is a good place to uh, point out that Lewis is using devil instead of demon, right? He's doing it properly. That's that's what I was explaining earlier. If you used demon in that sense, that would be incorrect. It, using devil is what he should be using. And that's what he does use. Okay, so continuing with what Dimble says, he says, even in St. Paul, one gets glimpses of a population that won't exactly fit into our two columns of angels and devils. And if you go back further, this is Dimble, all the gods, elves, dwarfs, water people, fete, longeve, you and I know too much to think they are just illusions. So those are a bunch of different names for uh, what are roughly called the daimons. That's what he's describing here. The things that are uh, neutral in respect to us. They are pursuing their own business is how Dimble phrased it. And notice there that Lewis used the word gods, lowercase g, because that's just like Elohim in Hebrew, which is gods. So I think Lewis is using the word Eldil to include all the beings within the spiritual realm. And his point in this passage by Dr. Dimble is that these beings, the Eldils, they are increasingly being forced to either be obedient or disobedient to God. They have to pick a side, essentially. So the the beings that were just pursuing their own ends, the neutrals, as Dimble referred to them, they are being uh, forced to the point of picking a side. And as Dimble says, this is perhaps different than it was back in the 5th century. So uh, the historical reason why that might be is something I'm going to touch on in a later episode. But the point of going into all this talk about the Eldils is, and going into this passage then by Dimble from chapter 13, is that I think in that hideous strength, Lewis is identifying Eldils with everything in the spiritual realm, all those things that are pure spirit or mere spirit, right? The intelligences, those things that are mere spirit and lack any sort of bodily manifestation. All right. And that's all I want to say about the Eldils for now. If you are interested in this whole topic, uh, the Eldils or Elohim, then like I said, check out Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm. That is probably the best source at this point for uh, looking at these things if you're interested in the biblical text. And of course, like I said, that's where Lewis is drawing all this. All right. So now I want to switch gears to the second section in this chapter where we have Wither and Frost and Miss Hardcastle, although I'm just going to go into the Wither and Frost part, but they're discussing their different techniques for how to get information out of somebody, how to manipulate somebody. And so we have Wither here talking. He says, oh, said Wither, there's nothing I should more deeply deplore. He's talking about torture. He doesn't think that's a good idea. Scientific examination. I cannot allow the word torture in this context, in cases where the patient doesn't know the answer, is always a fatal mistake. As men of humanity, we should neither of us, and then, if you go on, the patient naturally does not recover, and if you stop, even an experienced operator is haunted by the fear that perhaps he did know after all. It is in every way unsatisfactory. All right, so Wither, as usual, talks in this manner that's, you know, Hegelian, hard to understand. But what he's saying there is that he wants to get this information out of Mark, and the information is where Jane is. They're trying to get Jane to come to the Institute. And so he wants to know where she is, get that information out of Mark, and he doesn't think that torture is the right way to do it. Or he doesn't even like using that word. He says scientific examination. So then this is contrasted with 
Frost, who has a different approach. Frost slightly opened and extended his mouth, which was a very long one, so as to show his white teeth. That, he said, is a subdivision of the plan I was mentioning. I was saying that he must, Mark, he must be induced to send for the woman himself. That, of course, can be done in two ways, either by supplying him with some motive on the instinctive level, such as fear of us or desire for her, or else by conditioning him to identify himself so completely with the cause, capital C, that he will understand the real motive for securing her person and act on it. Okay, so neither of them like the idea of torture. That was Miss Hardcastle's idea. She wanted to torture him and she'd get the information out of him. Neither of them want to do that. They both think that's not the, the right way, but they have different approaches as to exactly how they're going to get the information out of him if they're not using torture. And Frost, he identifies two uh, courses of action. So to repeat those two courses, the first was supplying him with some motive on the instinctive level, such as fear of us or desire for her, meaning Jane. And the other one is by conditioning him to identify himself so completely with the cause that he will understand the real motive for securing her person and act on it. And so then as their conversation goes on, we see that of those two options that Frost identified, he rejects the first one, the instinctive motive one. He doesn't think that's the route to go. He says, it isn't to his wife that a man turns under the influence of aphrodisiacs. But as I was saying, I think it is a mistake to rely wholly on fear. So, so he doesn't want to uh, rely on either the sexual appetite or just fear alone as the route to get Mark to do what they want him to do. Then he says, I have observed over a number of years that its results are incalculable, meaning just relying on fear, especially when the fear is complicated. The patient may get too frightened to move, even in the desired direction. If we have to despair of getting the woman here with her husband's goodwill, we must use torture and take the consequences. But there are other alternatives. There is desire. So here we see where he thinks the true option is. It is desire. But then you say, well, he just said we're not going to use desire, right? The sexual appetites, those weren't going to be the route that they go down. So what desire are we talking about? All right. So with a response, he says, I am not sure that I am following you. Right. Makes sense. You know what I just said, the desire thing. All right. So then Wither also says, he says, you have rejected the idea of any medical or chemical approach, meaning you've rejected that sexual desire approach of saying the aphrodisiacs to try and get Mark to do what you want him to do. Frost then says, I was thinking of stronger desires. All right. So what are those stronger desires? I think it's pretty clear, given what we know about Mark, the stronger desires is his obsession with wanting to be on the inside, wanting to have that special access to that secret knowledge, the inner ring. The stronger desire here is the lure of the occult. And we see that then with what Frost goes on to say. I had my conversation with Philostrato, said Frost in his low, clear voice. I used expressions which must have made my meaning clear, if he had any notion of the truth. His senior assistant, Wilkins, was present too. The fact is that neither is really interested. What interests them is the fact that they have succeeded, as they think, in keeping the head alive and getting it to talk. What it says does not really interest them. As to any question about what is really speaking, they have no curiosity. I went very far. 
I raised questions about its mode of consciousness, its sources of information. There was no response. And then Wither says, You are suggesting, if I understand you, said Wither, a movement towards this Mr. Studdock along those lines. If I remember rightly, you rejected fear on the ground that its effects would not really be predicted with the accuracy one might wish. But, ah, uh, would the method now envisaged be any more reliable? I need hardly say that I fully realize a certain disappointment which serious-minded people must feel with such colleagues as Philostrato and his subordinate, Mr. Wilkins. And then Frost replies by saying, that is the point. So the point for Frost is that Philostrato and then his assistant, Mr. Wilkins, they are not interested in the macrobes or the dark eldils, or just to use the common word, given all we've talked about, the devils. They are not interested in those things, which is what is actually animating Alcasan's head. Uh, animate, think of the uh, Greek word anima, which is soul. So the thing that is the consciousness of Alcasan's head is these macrobes, and they're not interested in that. They are interested in the physical processes, the technology by which they are keeping Alcasan's head alive, not with the consciousness of that head, the thing that is actually doing the animating, the thinking within it. But Frost knows that Mark is so obsessed with wanting to have that secret knowledge and wanting to be within the inner ring that that is the stronger desire that he can then use to get Mark to do what they want. So it's interesting uh, to point out here that Wither and Frost, those are the top two initiates in the nice and Wither has his pupil who is, um, you know, going through the, the training, going up the orders, right, of the of the society to achieve the top status within the nice. And that guy for Wither is Strake. For Frost, you would think that maybe it'd be Philostrato. And we're seeing right here that it's not Philostrato. Philostrato doesn't have what it takes because he's not interested in the deeper things that Frost is. Mark he thinks can be that guy. He can be his pupil that he will initiate to the highest order of the nice. So to put it simply, Philostrato, he doesn't feel that same kind of occult lure that Mark does. He doesn't have that same deep desire. Mark has it. Frost knows it. And so he's the guy. All right. That's enough for this chapter. Those are the things I was interested in touching on for this chapter. Uh, if you like the show, please subscribe to the show. You can scroll down on the show's page and click the five stars. That'll do me a great favor as I try to get the show out there for more people. Um, share it if you like. If you want to follow the show, you can click on the link to Instagram in the show notes. And later this week, I'll have an episode coming out in which I talk to Serena Higgins and we talk about some of the same kind of things that we're talking about in this episode. So look for that later in the week. As a king governs by his executive, so reason and man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element, the chest, magnanimity, sentiment. These are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. It may even be said that it is by this mental element that man is man, for by his intellect, he is mere spirit, by his appetite, mere animal. See you next week.